So of, uh, you know, of all the descriptions of our God found in the Bible, probably the most shocking to our 21st century sensibilities is the image of God as a warrior. As a combatant fighting soldier-like against the enemies of his sovereignty, and then ultimately, after a, a fierce but foregone battle, proclaiming victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, you know, this war we're in is not just, um, excuse me, <coughs> I'm sorry, allergies, apologize. And it's not, it's not just an image, though, uh, of that warrior that we connect with God, the affectionate Father, or with the, the snow-white dove and tender wind of the Holy Spirit, and we definitely don't connect the image of warrior to Christ, our gentle shepherd, meek and mild. The only trouble with all of that is, if we're going to be faithful to the full counsel of God's Word, then we have to take it as it comes. And we have to proclaim it like it is. And we have to resist the urge to soften it up or to dumb it down and try to cram it like a square peg into the round hole uh, of the effeminate milk toast model of the typical millennial church. Uh, because the living word of God says very plainly, whether we like it or not, that the Lord is a man of war. Uh, and the Old Testament is actually is replete with those combat-ridden, battle-hardened references, like Deuteronomy 1.30. It says, For the Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Jeremiah 20.11 says, But... The Lord is with me as a dread warrior, therefore my persecutors will stumble. Isaiah 59, 15 says, And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. And you may be thinking, well, well, Pastor, that's, that's just in the Old Testament side of the book. You know, that, that one where God seemed just like he was angry all the time. But hey, that, that all changed when Jesus came, right? Are you sure about that? Because Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34, recalls Jesus saying, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And Luke tells us that Jesus said to his men in Luke 12, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. And I love this one from, from the book of Revelation, chapter 19. John is having his vision of heaven, and then he said, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I think that's all pretty clear, right? So then it shouldn't surprise us to know that our holy God uh, is, a create, is a courageous king on a mission of universal conquest. And as that God, he not only conscripts, but equips his covenant people to be a part of that battle plan. And that actually takes us right to the message and to the mission objective that King David lays out for us in Psalm 144. So I hope you have that in your, your Bible before you. Uh, and the psalm is actually superscribed of David. And he writes, 
Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He's my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from, my, from many waters, from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On the ten-stringed harp I will play to you. Who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failing in bear, failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets, Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Amen. And brothers and sisters, that's the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you that we have been so very blessed uh, to have your word, to be able to have it in front of us in our own language that we can read and that we can understand. But, Father, that only goes so far. We need your Holy Spirit to write it on our hearts. And so we ask for that, uh, even now as we've read your word and we're about to expound on it, uh, that you would send that Holy Spirit to teach us, Lord, the message you have for us today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so in today's psalm, we see uh, King David's confidence in, in God as that warrior. And especially for those of you in Bible study, we know battle was a big part of David's life, right? Um, and we've said before, you know, whether we realize it or not, to become a Christian is to be enlisted in a war. And it's not a concentrated offensive, but it's one that's fought against multiple opponents on three fronts. Those ones that I mentioned, and those are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so I want to consider those three today, and I want to take them in that order. So first, our world. You know, I think it's very clear... Uh, to all of us that our children and our grandchildren will grow up in an America that's far different from the America that you and I knew as kids. Uh, our children and our grandchildren will never know the America that had once prohibited the usage of four-letter words on television. They will never know the America where you could leave your doors unlocked and where you didn't think twice about leaving your uh, keys in the ignition if you ran into the store. Our children and grandchildren will never know the America where businesses closed their doors on Sundays so that folks could and did attend morning and evening worship. Or where public schools taught history and the sciences without intentionally and consistently and systematically attacking and undermining the biblical worldview. And when you look at the aggregate of all of that together, of all of those things, do you ever wonder what our ancestors would think uh, if they could see what has happened to America since they passed? I have a feeling they would as the, 
the saying goes, be rolling over in their graves, don't you? Uh, and probably they'd be asking the question, what happened to all the things that we worked so hard to build? Why didn't anybody defend them? Why didn't anybody fight for them? And how in the world can we as their descendants possibly expect our nation and its people to continue to be blessed when culturally, nationally speaking, our country's God is no longer the Lord as in generations past, but has become our self-centered lives and our individual passions. So that by and large, uh, our country's sons and daughters now, if I can be controversial enough to reference their gender, are, and, and with exceptions, but are nowhere near the model of sturdy, mature, vibrant young men or graceful, strong, confident young women that David envisioned in today's song. But since we know that's the case, because we see it all around us, how do we begin to re-engage along those battle lines that we've collectively let slip? Uh, and make no mistake, they have slipped. And we are definitely living now in a post-Christian nation that is radically unlike the preceding two generations. Uh, now, of course, you know, we've always had incidents of failures and, and flaws and vices. Every nation made up of human beings has victims and villains. But American society as a whole, up until the very late 50s and the early 60s, uh, held its, its citizens, its families, and its leaders to a high moral standard. And that was the moral standard of the Holy Bible. And its profound influence produced virtuous children. And those children grew up to be good fathers and good mothers and good teachers and, and ministers and, and judges and engineers and orators and statesmen. And those statesmen as policymakers understood the connection between the breakdown of the Christian family and the societal problems that we face like alcoholism and drug addiction and welfare addiction and juvenile delinquency and violent crime. And they actually believed the Bible when it claimed that only nations that obey the moral laws of God are blessed, like we read this morning. But even then, even already then, emerging first in Western Europe around the turn of the 20th century, uh, educators and elitists began rejecting the idea that the, the laws of morality are eternal and unchanging. Uh, the commandments like honor your father and mother and thou shalt not commit adultery, uh, they began to sound too old-fashioned. People abandoned the absolute morality of the word of God and instead they embraced the evolving morality of Charles Darwin and guys like Sigmund Freud. And as a result, the moral landscape of today's world is now totally transformed. And the family unit has never been the same. Particularly now in an era where marriage is no longer defined as a divinely sanctioned partnership between one man and one woman. Uh, in a day and age where, where some groups like, like BLM and the, and the rest of the alphabet people go even further and assert that it is actually the traditional family that's harmful. That its very structure is a type of subjugation of women and children. Broken homes and illegitimate children are now so common that it's considered insensitive to even suggest that those individuals may be disadvantaged. And rather than accepting the notion that society is falling short of biblical standards, they've just changed the standards. And so what do we do? Where do we turn? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that David's Psalm 144 is a great place to start because we need its reminder that the Lord, who is the head of this church in all things, 
is also the King of kings and Lord of lords of all the nations of the earth and of all the stuff that happens inside them. See, ours is not a God who is just in charge of things on Sunday mornings but then has to bow to the whims of human rulers on the rest of the earth Monday through Saturday. Our God is king even now. Our God is in charge even now. Even now, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his command, and neither does one human being, because, brothers and sisters, our God is in charge. Regardless of our assertion that we have the right to live any way that we wish. And this is, I think, maybe really important to insert right here, and I sometimes find this happen. If you find yourself thinking right now, well, some other person or, or some other group or some other political party needs to be the one hearing this stuff. The real truth is we all do. Uh, because the Bible says that the king's judgment begins with the house of the Lord. And so this is a message, first and foremost, to me. And whoever you are, it's a message to you too. A message for us to look at our lives and see where we've been complicit with the collapse of Christian culture and then repent of that. And it starts right inside our own homes. And even more explicitly within our own heads and with our own hearts. Because we dismiss the clear directions of our commanding officer and prefer instead to take his place. To put ourselves on the throne, which only throws a monkey wrench in the whole works. Knocking everything else in our lives out of place. And in the process, straining our relationships to the breaking point. Because brothers and sisters, if we ever want to live in that blessed country that David described. We want to really have a country where there'll be, as he prayed, no cry of distress in the streets, no, no cry from, from frustrated men who, who go out to the garage to punch the wall and, and kick the cat to get away from their nagging wives, or, or from depressed women who, who struggle to hold back tears of rage because their husband is acting full-blown retard again, right? We, <laughs> there's nothing autobiographical in that at all right but that's why I said this message is for me uh, we need <laughs> we need to look into the face of our own private mirrors and see where that second branch of the battle is waging and that is the battle of the desires of the flesh the desires of the flesh that have kept us out of a right relationship with our creator and thereby with each other in whatever way that happens in your individual experience and I freely confess that I have not always been the ideal Christian husband or father or leader that I know Christ expects me to be, but I hope, I hope you realize you haven't either. In, in whatever role that you've been called into in God's army. Uh, but folks, there, there is a book of standing orders. This is his book of, of standard operating procedures. It's a training manual that covers both the large-scale spiritual wars that we face as well as those little breakfast table battles that are only the symptom and the consequence of that wider conflict that I mentioned. We just don't always pay it any attention. And the really sad part is we all really know this stuff because the truth is, in the flesh, we don't really care what our heavenly commander-in-chief wants. Uh, in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul couldn't agree more. He said of humanity, well, they know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created... People have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. 
Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think out foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. They instead became utter fools. And do you notice the order of this, how Paul says it happens? See, he said, here we are in a world where truth from God is literally breaking out all around us, but humanity's busy covering it up and, and hiding it and, and suppressing it and keeping it from being prominent and predominant in our thinking and keeping ourselves intentionally blindfolded to the only truth that can really provide the life and liberty and freedom and godliness that we all long for. Uh, and the nature of the truth that's being suppressed, David gave it to us in the psalm, is the existence of a holy and sovereign God of eternal power and majesty who created mankind and has the right, the only right, to determine the boundaries of right and wrong. And everybody knows that, whether they want to admit it to themselves or not. Because the scripture says that there's available to every person a certain knowledge of God, a knowledge obtained by observing his works in creation and by observing the natural order that he put in place and yet we suppress that see we know all those things but all, all of us you me everyone listening to this message we were all born with a want to right we were all born with the attitude that we just want what we want when we want it right? and it doesn't take long for that to seep into our culture and it all begins with a society that says we know what's right we just don't care we know what's right. We just don't care. Whether that means that's a church member saying, how about we just keep all those opinions and rules and churchy things in the confines of our church building so that nobody gets offended and so we don't look too weird to our neighbors. Right? You know, those same ones, those same neighbors that are busy saying, don't talk to us about God or Christ or sin. Keep that all to yourselves. Go worship your Jesus on your own time. Because we live in a day and age when people look at their creator and flat out say to him, no. No, God. We know your plans for us, but we have plans of our own. Plans informed by the prevailing winds of the world and by our own selfish wants. And then guess what happens? When we do that, we become wide open to the influence of the enemy that's in that third flank of our war. And that's the deception of the devil. Uh, because the danger here is, as G.K. Chesterton once wrote, when you stop believing in the essential tenets of our Christian faith, it's not you end up believing in nothing but rather that you could end up believing almost anything. Right? When you stop believing in the essential tenets of our Christian faith, there's no danger that you'll believe nothing. But rather the danger is you could be, uh, end up believing almost anything. Meaning that to a great extent the judgment of God on humanity is humanity getting exactly what they want. Whatever that particular uh, sinful want happens to be. Because brothers and sisters, uh, every sin... The Bible says every sin, the public ones and the private ones, the socially acceptable ones and the ones we don't discuss in polite company, every sin is treason and a cosmic rebellion against the majesty of Christ. It's spitting in the face of our Creator. And when we do that, when humanity rejects God's own revelation of Himself, He, he says He gives them over to idolatry, to worship the things that God has made instead of the one who made them. And when humanity rejects God and his purposes for us, God gives us over to practice the unnatural. Humanity says we want God to leave us alone. We want none of his control. So God gives humanity exactly what they ask for, both while they're here on earth and then for eternity of separation 
from him in the future. Because the truth is, every single sin, every sin that's ever been committed or every sin that ever will be committed will one day be paid for in full. One way or the other. Either by the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross or by the eternal punishment of hell for the sinner. And when you put all those things together, what a terrifying thought it is then that when men and women freely suppress the truth of the gospel, then hell is just the culmination of a person being freely given exactly what they asked for. And, and I, can never, I can never remember which of the founders said this, but one of them said, and if you, if you find it, you can send it to me, uh, freedom is not licensed to do anything we want, but the liberty to do what's right. I want to say Benjamin Franklin, but I don't think that's right. Uh, said freedom is the freedom is not licensed to do anything we want, but the liberty to do that which is right. And you see, the freedom of being part of Christ's army is like that because it binds men and women to Him so that we can experience the truest freedom of all, which is to become a servant soldier of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even though our Bill of Rights grants me a hundred freedoms, freedom of assembly and, and speech and, and personal property and on and on in this world, yet as a conscript of Christ's kingdom, my time is not my own in order that I can fulfill the royal law. See, I'm not free to say just anything that I want to say, but I'm under orders and I'm bound to speak the truth of God's word in love and sometimes in toughness, whether people accept it or not. Uh, and even though the, uh, that by law I can't be deprived of life or liberty or property without due process, and I, and I live in a country that's still the envy of the world, the only thing I have to boast about is the cross of Jesus Christ and his bloody victory that he won there. And so for you and me today, it's our sacred duty to speak and to act at Christ's command, to, to love our country and everyone in it, but with eyes wide open. And as one author said, to love my country too much to see it complicit in its own destruction. See, that's the tension that we live in as citizens of a country, but as soldiers of a king. Uh, and to steal another line from Chesterton, he said we need to, to uh, hate the things we see going on around us enough to want to see them changed, but love our country and all its people enough to realize that they are infinitely worth changing. We need to hate the things we see going on around us, hate them enough to want to see them changed, but love our country and all its people enough to realize they are infinitely worth changing. And we need to do it with open eyes and with an informed mind and with courage to condemn in a heart of caring and with the righteous conviction and tender compassion of Jesus Christ uh, until we reach that eternal city. That eternal city, the new Jerusalem bought with the precious offering of Christ's blood and with the sacrifice of his body, a body murdered for us on the battlefield of our rebellion so that we could be mended in him, mended in body and in mind and in spirit to a resurrected reality, one that that will naturally lead us then into praise and worship of our warrior king. Just like David's final words to us today in a psalm, uh, words that actually consist of a beautiful benediction when he said, Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And brothers and sisters, God has blessed America. And despite all of our nation's problems, it is still the greatest nation on earth to live in. And even as many of our traditional foundations may be crumbling around us, we must not ever fear or lose hope. And instead we take refuge in the one foundation that can never be destroyed, and that's the foundation of our faith in God. A God who offered his son in the midst of battle 
the foundation of that Lord Jesus Christ who won our pardon and the foundation of God's word like that two-edged sword through the power of the Holy Spirit whereby grace alone we behold the Messiah's face, our warrior king, wounded for our transgression but risen, ascended and coming again in majesty and dominion with resurrection life and spiritual liberty to all that believe. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you uh, that you were willing to uh, not spare your own son, but send him, Lord, into this uh, spiritual warfare, this physical warfare. Uh, And he was willing to lay down his life, Lord, as I said, on the battlefield of our rebellion. We're so grateful that he chose to do that. We're so grateful that he chose us to be a part of it. And so, Lord, I ask that uh, in this moment that you would continue to open minds and change hearts. Uh, If there's even one among us or one listening that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, please surprise them by the power of your presence. Uh, Reclaim them, Father, for your kingdom. And be with us all, Lord, as we go out into the world this week, uh, that we may wage that spiritual battle in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And we ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.